welcome to our continuing 2021 educational webinar series. I am Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for FIRST Healthcare Compliance. At FIRST Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business. A hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility, and we help manage every aspect of a compliance program, and our training library provides hundreds of modules that are easy to assign and track. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Shauna Eatry, partner at Seeger Weiss LLP with us today. For well over a decade, Shauna has been leading litigation teams in complex fraud cases in both state and federal courts. Shauna's nationwide practice has focused on representing plaintiffs in various settings, including class action securities and consumer matters, antitrust, and cases involving patient harm. Shauna also has extensive experience representing whistleblowers in False Claims Act lawsuits and tax and securities whistleblowers with claims under the IRS and SEC whistleblower programs. After obtaining her law degree, Shauna sought to represent plaintiffs because of her deep-seated notions of fairness and her desire to represent individuals who wanted to bring corporate fraud to light. She believes the key to success in complex litigation is using experience to lay bare various de defense tactics that are designed to obscure the truth. Shauna's temperament brings a sense of calmness to her litigation teams, even under the most demanding conditions. Using her legal skills, vision, work ethic, and attention to detail, she has regularly generated multi-million dollar settlements for her clients. Prior to becoming an attorney, Shauna received a BA and an MA from Stanford University, where she was a two-time captain of the university's women's nationally ranked soccer team. She received her JD from Villanova University. Shauna is an avid volunteer and educator. She has served as an adjunct professor at Villanova and Widener Law School, teaching corporate deviance courses uh, Shauna. Shauna uh, currently serves as co-chair of Stanford University Alumni Undergraduate Admissions Volunteer Interview Program and is the president of the Junior League of Philadelphia Incorporated, an organization of approximately 800 women com committed to promoting volunteerism, developing the potential of women, and improving the community through an effective action and leadership of trained volunteers. Before we begin, I would like to mention at FIRST Healthcare Compliance, we strive to serve as a trusted resource for compliance professionals, and every month we celebrate their hard work and dedication with our Compliance Super Ninja recognition. For this Super Ninja, our team is turning the spotlight on Betty M. Perryman, Administrator at Southern Avenue Family Practice. Betty says, I have worked with my doctor for many years, and I really enjoy the interaction with the patients. We have a concierge practice, and we are able to spend more time with the patients when they come in. Our staff has been together for a long time, and we work well as a team, and it is a pleasure working with them. 
Congratulations, Betty. Our team is honored to have the privilege of working with you. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. So Shauna, a very warm welcome. Thank you so much for being here today and for presenting your webinar. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine, um, for that very warm introduction and first healthcare compliance. Thank you for having me and attendees, thank you for attending. Um, today, I'm going to be talking about fraud, healthcare, COVID, and the False Claims Act. Um, and first, uh, a little bit of my bio. Don't need to go through this because Catherine already did. If you download the slides, this will be available to you as well. And want to just briefly go over what we will be talking about today. This is intended to be an introductory session for those who do not have any experience with the False Claims Act. For those that have a, an intermediate experience with the False Claims Act, this will be a brush up and you might learn some things. And towards the end, uh, what everyone has been talking about today, the trends in the False Claims Act, including data mining and uh, any sort of fraud related to COVID-19. It's a very popular topic today. So just to go briefly through an introduction of the various whistleblower laws. These laws uh, listed here on, on this slide are you know, four of the main laws. This is not necessarily all of the whistleblower laws that are present, but these are the four main ones. Today, I'm gonna be focused on what's highlighted, which is the Federal and State False Claims Act. But I did want you to know that some other popular whistleblower laws are the IRS Whistleblower Act, the SEC Whistleblower Act, which are really not uh, lawsuits, they're more tips uh, filed with the respective agencies uh, about securities and tax fraud. There's also this California Insurance Fraud Prevention Act that I did want to mention at the beginning of the presentation. Not a lot of people know about it. It's an underutilized statute. And as we will talk about, while federal and state false claims act relates to government money, Medicare, Medicaid, veterans, and TRICARE, the California Insurance Fraud Prevention Act relates to private insurance companies. It acts in similar ways to the False Claims Act, but instead of bringing a claim on behalf of the government, you can bring a claim on behalf of private insurance companies in California only. It's a very unique statute. So I did wanna raise that, but again, today we will be focused on the Federal and State False Claims Act. What is the False Claims Act? Many of you probably already know, but for those that, that don't, it is a statute that was implemented. It allows individuals with evidence of fraud, waste, or abuse that is being committed against the federal or state governments to sue on behalf of the government. Very interesting, very different than a lot of the other laws that you might be used to. And I will give a brief example. You know, say there's a car ca crash, the 
person hit is the plaintiff, the person doing the hitting is the defendant, the plaintiff uh, has suffered injuries, it could be physical, it could be emotional, and sues for the defendant for those injuries. The plaintiff has standing to sue because the plaintiff has been injured. This statute is a little bit different because the person that brings the lawsuit, the whistleblower or the relator, does not have to have standing, does not have to be personally harmed. The government has to have been harmed. And the whistleblower, the person bringing the lawsuit, can stand in the shoes of the government and bring the case on behalf of the government for the government harm. So it's a very unique statute in that way. And you might ask, why would a whistleblower do that? Well, if the case is successful, if the case recovers money, then the whistleblower is rewarded a portion of that fund, usually 15 to 25%. A little bit of history of the False Claims Act is, is necessary. It was enacted in 1863, originally called Lincoln's Law. And during that time, it was a civil war and the Union Army was contracting to, uh, with third parties to get supplies. And what was occurring is there were, the Union Army was getting defrauded and the third parties were selling shoddy materials you know, for uniforms that if it rained, the, the uniform would deteriorate. They were selling decrepit horses to the government, to the Union Army. So, the False Claims Act was enacted to go after that because at the time there weren't enough federal investigators to properly investigate the contracting crimes. So this law, this law was brought, it was enacted, and it allowed for individuals who had knowledge of the fraud, waste, or abuse being committed against the government, in this case the Union Army, to bring a case and re recover money for, for bringing that case. Later on in 1943, during World War II, the False Claims Act was frankly abused by a lot of the citizens. And so in reaction, the Congress weakened the False Claims Act. There were numerous suits that were filed that either had no merit or uh, were based on news articles. And so Congress decided this was actually hurting more than helping and they uh, weakened it through legislation then it became um, apparent that, again, later on in time after World War II, the, in 1986, about then, they discovered that the government was again getting defrauded. They had discovered you know, things such as a, a coffee bot being sought, sold and bought by the government for $7,000. Uh, I think there's an example of a toilet seat that was bought for you know, $600. And so, uh, Ronald Reagan was president, and in 1986, again, the False Claims Act was amended, it's from the 1943 amendments, and it greatly strengthened the False Claims Act in response to the overcharging by defense contractors. What it did was it trebled damages, it had 5,000 to 10,000 per false claims, and it increased the percentage of the recovery to the relator, 15 to 30%, which incentivized people to come forward. And today, the 1986 amendments are still in place. Actually, in 2010, it was the statute was amended and further strengthened, and there is a legislation uh, that might be pending to strengthen it even further. So today, we're going to be talking about the Federal False Claims Act. Um, 
But I did want to note that there are various states that have enacted state false claims acts. And these state false claims acts are all modeled, generally speaking, after the Federal False Claims Act. The State False Claims Act involved state government money. Obviously, the Federal False Claims Act allows to recover federal government money. And some of the State False Claims Act are only limited to healthcare fraud or Medicaid fraud. And only one State False Claims Act includes a provision for tax fraud, that's New York. Others are silent. And it, you may be able to file tax fraud under those. But for the Federal False Claims Act, it's specifically exempted because of the IRS whistleblower statute. So I did want to make note of that. And I do want to make note in this next slide of the states that have enacted a state false claims act. You can see here, here's a list of the current states that have a false claims act. The one with asterisks by them have false claims act that only provides for recovery for Medicaid or healthcare fraud. So again, when I talk during the presentation, I'm going to mainly be talking about the Federal False Claims Act, but just keep in your mind that also, there's also a State False Claims Act in certain states. So not only is the False Claims Act interesting and unique in a substantive level, in a standing level, uh, it's also very unique procedurally. And I'll explain what happens. So generally speaking, what happens is a client comes to a whistleblower attorney and says they have a claim. The whistleblower attorney will investigate they'll, if there's a theory of liability, if the facts support the potential claim. The whistleblower attorney will file, will draft and file a, a complaint on behalf of the whistleblower, and they'll file that complaint under seal. A lot of times that means that they will have to go to the court themselves and in a sealed envelope file the complaint. Um, that complaint then, the, the whistleblower receives a, whistleblower attorney rather, receives a time-stamped copy, and the whistleblower attorney then serves the complaint pursuant to the False Claims Act statute on the government. So at this point, the only people that really know about the whistleblower case is the government, the court, and the whistleblower and his or her attorney. The defendant is not served with the complaint initially. It is under seal, and the defendant does not know they have been sued. The seal is for 60 days per statute, but Typically, and the seal is extended for at a minimum a year, probably two. Sometimes I've had cases under seal for 10 years. And the government, uh, at that time, the case, when the case is under seal, they investigate the case. And when I say investigate, they might they'll definitely interview the whistleblower. They will definitely um, look into their own documents. They'll look at the complaint. They'll uh, talk to the whistleblower attorney about the theory of liability. They might pull claims data. They might uh, subpoena the, the defendant without them knowing that they've been sued by a whistleblower. They will um, likely, if it calls for it, interview um, the government agencies. They might interview former employees. And that's how they investigate it. It really depends on the case. It really depends on the prosecutor and the district in which the case was filed. After the government investigates is a key point in the case. When the government makes a decision is they're gonna intervene in the case and take the case on, or if the government's going to decline the case. If the government declines the case, the whistleblowers and the whistleblower attorney has an opportunity to pursue the case. I'll typically when a, an intervention decision is made and the government declines the case, the case is uh, dismissed voluntarily, I think about 15% of cases are intervened by the government. So it's a, a fairly low, low proportion. 
Um, and then the case comes out from under seal if it's intervened or if it's declined and the whistleblower seeks to pursue the case. And it is served on the defendant and it becomes a regular case. It's out in discovery and it, it either is dismissed, it settles, or it goes to trial for a verdict. And if damages um, are awarded, then the whistleblower will receive a portion of those damages. Again, 15 to 25% if the case is intervened and 25 to 30% if the case is declined and the whistleblower decides to pursue the case. Moving forward, some interesting facts about the False Claims Act and how it has been successful since 1986. If you look at these stats, you will see that the False Claims Act has been an important tool in fighting government waste, fraud, and abuse. In 2020, if you'll see here, um, there are 922 cases filed. This is a rise in QTAM cases since. Um, and if you look here, these are some of the settlements, our total recoveries under the False Claims Act. And if you'll see here in 2020, it has, it's, it's down. It's you know, still significant, over $2 billion, but it is down a little bit from the previous year. But this overall shows since 1986, since the amendments, that the False Claims Act has really been utilized. It's more cases, generally speaking, are filed every year, and there's been more settlements every year. So now that we've had the background about the procedural uniqueness of the False Claims Act and how substantively it's unique, I thought it would be helpful first to go through some examples of fraud under the False Claims Act. So to help you establish a working knowledge of the False Claims Act. So what types of cases are, are typically filed? And these are just very run-of-the-mill cases. Um, there's an inpatient versus outpatient. And to give you an example, there are many, many years ago, there were several cases filed where uh, a person goes to the ER of a hospital and you know the person needs some treatment, but in, generally speaking for Medicare and Medicaid, they reimburse more for an inpatient procedure, some, someone that comes in and stays overnight because generally speaking, it's, it's more serious and an outpatient procedure where the person comes to the ER, they're treated, they leave in, in a few hours. What was occurring under these cases is a person would come to the ER and the uh, ER physicians or staff would uh, consider them an inpatient. They would admit the patient and then perform work on the patient and bill Medicare for inpatient procedures when outpatient was medically necessary to obtain additional reimbursement. This type of scheme um, is violates the False Claims Act. Now, I'm not talking about it happening on a one-off basis, maybe one time it happened. You know, maybe um, an employee made an accident or a mistake. This has to be a pervasive conduct. It either has to be you know, every person in the ER is doing it every day for a long period of time. There is an executive policy from the hospital administration saying, hey, you ER doctors, you have to admit X amount of people for inpatient regardless of their medical diagnosis. That's a type of case that a false would be a good false claims act, not some one-off case. So it has to be a per pervasive policy. Another example is unlicensed billing. As you all know, Medicare and Medicaid, in order to request reimbursement, the person performing the procedure has to have a specific license. If a person is unqualified, is unlicensed, and performs a procedure and they bill Medicare or Medicaid, that could be problematic. That could be a potential false claims act. Again, 
it, it cannot be a one-off situation. It needs to be pervasive. It needs to be happening regularly. There needs to be an executive policy from high up. Upcoding is very similar. A person comes to a physician and they need a to toenail removed. The physician removes the toenail, but in billing Medicare and Medicaid, they say they amputate the toe to get more reimbursement. That is upcoding. Generally speaking, it's a good, pretty simple False Claims Act case, but it has to be occurring regularly. Again, multiple people over multiple years, um, a pervasive policy. Some examples of fraud uh, under the False Claims Act um, can be charging for services or supplies not provided, as similar to upcoding. A doctor performs a procedure, say they use a specific device but don't use the device and they bill Medicare for it. That's charging that uh, for a service not received or a device not received. That can be a False Claims Act of failing or, falsifi or falsifying records. Uh, CMS, Medicare, Medicaid requires doctors to keep documentation uh, for the procedures that they perform or the services that they perform. Doctors don't have to submit that documentation when they submit for reimbursement, but they do need to keep that documentation on file in case the Medicare asks for it or there's an audit. So if they do not keep that documentation on file, that could be a potential False Claims Act case. Um, I, I have a whole separate side for kickbacks because this is a very, very common type of False Claims Act and it involves payment in, or in kind in, or direct of money or in kind of something of quote unquote value in exchange for referrals. So this is a very um, uh, complex statute and it, and it really involves a lot of determination of what is value. And I, I set forth this two cases for an example of what's not a kickback. So in this case, you know, the court had found general allegations amounted to a little more than claiming Medtronic sponsored conferences, reimbursed attendees for some expenses and provided food or promoted devices. Companies are allowed to host conferences. They're allowed to uh, compensate speakers. They're allowed to host um, lunches. What they're not allowed to do is to send a doctor in exchange for referrals to Hawaii um, and, and an all-expense paid trip. So that could be a kickback, but simple things you're allowed to do. And so it comes to a point where you have to decide what, what value was received and was it above fair market value? And here, this next is, is an example of uh, a case that settled against BioVail for $24 million. Now, what had happened was BioVail had a study and they, they said doctors, they asked doctors to, um, to engage in this study and they would pay the doctor $1,000 per, per enrollee and the doctor would have to prescribe a drug, have three visits and complete a small questionnaire of a patient. And the stated objective was to accelerate uptake of prescriptions among doctors. Now, uh, the court ended up finding that this was an exorbitant payment. This $1,000 per enrollee was an exorbitant payment. It was above fair market value, and it was an exchange for referrals. So what if, you know, the instead of $1,000 per enrollee, the company compensated the doctors $10 per enrollee? That probably wouldn't be a quote-unquote exorbitant payment. It probably wouldn't be above fair market value. Or um, if the doctor was required to 
monitor the patient extensively for a 12-month period, um, complete, you know, each time complete a, a questionnaire, that might be worth the $1,000. So therefore, the fair, it was fair market value. So you can see here, it's really a judgment call. And these cases come down to expert testimony about value, what is fair market value. Some other examples are um, sham directorships. Say a physician has been working with a hospital. They want to keep that physician um, referring patients to the hospital. So they, they give the the physician a directorship, they compensate him or her $100,000 to be a director of the ER. In exchange, the director does not have to do anything. That's $1,000 kickback, $100,000 kickback. That, that's not anything. In, in exchange, if the director then had to teach you know, five attendings, had to teach a class every week, had to um, do some more administrative work, that might be worth the $100,000 in the directorship payment. But if they're not, if it's a sham directorship, then that is a kickback. And so it's, it's a close call. It's um, something that an expert has to testify that if, if is this value worth it? Are they paying for referrals? Are they paying for some sort of service? Moving forward, um, I wanna talk so I can get to the recent trend, which is I think probably the most interesting piece of um, some of these cases. You know, we talked about what the False Claims Act is, what kind of case is a False Claims Act, the history of the False Claims Act, but let's talk about it from a whistleblower perspective. These cases are incentivized, whistleblowers are incentivized to bring these cases because of the potential amount of money, but I want to keep it real here. These cases are difficult cases. I said it before, out of, you know, 100 cases that are filed, about 85 of them are declined by the government. That means only 15 of those cases are, are pursued by the government. Of those 85 cases declined, uh, many of those are not litigated. Many of them are dismissed. So about, you know, if there's 15 cases going forward, those cases, generally speaking, are not, you know, $100 million cases. A lot of these cases are smaller. I would say the majority of the cases send, settle for about $2 million. And when you take a percentage of that, and you know, if, if it's 15%, it ends up being a significant amount of money, but quite possibly you know, not worth the whistleblower's time. And that is because um, the whistleblower you know, has to face a gauntlet at times. And depending on the defendant, the whistleblower could face counterclaims. The defendant could say, oh, the whistleblower stole documents, the whistleblower, you know, violated confidentiality agreements. Those counterclaims are usually combated and, and generally speaking, I'm not gonna guarantee um, they're unsuccessful, but they can be successful. There was a case where a whistleblower, um, in order to uh, get documents to support her allegations, she took a file and the defendant uh, filed a counterclaim saying that um, the, the whistleblower violated confidentiality agreement. And the court ended up saying, yeah, you did because you took more documents than you needed to, to take. If you took you know, 10 documents that you needed and not the whole file, that would be a different story. So it's really, you know, you, you don't know how the court's going to rule. So there, there are some issues. There are counterclaims that the whistleblower could face. The reputation in the field is another big one. A lot of times clients come to me and say, can I re remain anonymous? And it, it's difficult to do. And so, you know, if the whistleblower is outed, uh, if the case is litigated and it becomes uh, common knowledge that 
the whistleblower brought the case, if they interview from, for another job, maybe another company might not want to hire someone who in the past has been a whistleblower. So there is an issue with potentially being blackballed in the industry. Um, retaliation is a huge one. A lot of times, whistleblowers come to me after having employment issues because they internally reported the fraud and were retaliated in a way. They reached out to an employment lawyer and then the employment lawyer usually refers the cases to me. So being retaliated against by your employer is, is unfortunately, you know, not uncommon. And, you know, when you file a whistleblower case, it becomes the government's case and you lose a little bit of control there. And it takes a long time. I mentioned with SEAL takes a couple of years. If the case comes out from under SEAL and is litigated, it could take a couple more years. So it, it takes it takes time and it's stressful. You know, this is something that the whistleblower is very, very passionate about. They complain about it or they're worried about it. They brought this case and litigation, generally speaking, involves a lot of conflict and it can be stressful. And you might not hear a lot because when the government's investigating, they don't tell you a lot. Now, what are the good sides? Well, heck, if it's a good case and if there is money recovered, there's a big bounty at the end. Um, it could possibly be that some healthcare industries or companies will think that being a whistleblower is a good thing, that a whistleblower is honest. Action is taken. You know, the whistleblower at the time that they're complaining, you know, they they feel like the company's doing something wrong and they want to right that wrong. By filing a whistleblower case, you can feel proud that the action has been taken. And it eliminates some stress of, of knowing that there's fraud and not doing anything. So there are some pros, but there are also some cons of, of bringing a whistleblower case. And anytime a client comes to me, I, I always let them know. Um, and, and just for a point, you know, these cases are not that common. For the most part, companies are doing the right thing or trying to do the right thing. For the most part, you know, 95% of the time, there's no case there. Um, and if the employee goes to their compliance officer or their supervisor, a lot of times the company will is thankful for it and they'll fix it. Um, this, these, these are one-off situations where the company is not and they try to hide it. And, and that's when a whistleblower case comes about. Um, next slide. Um, and just another quick note uh, before I get to the trends is, in addition to the pros and cons of being a whistleblower, there's a lot of traps. It's a very niche practice. There's a lot of things that you need to be aware of if, if there's a whistleblower. First of all, the whistleblower needs to lawfully obtain evidence. You can't just go in and break into someone's office and use someone's passcode. You need to gather evidence that are in your uh, the scope of your employment. So if it falls across your desk in the ordinary course of business, it's okay. But you can't go searching for evidence. You can't disclose uh, information that was given to you uh, that is privileged or that your the company's attorney has, has communicated to, to the whistleblower. So that's also very, very important. Um, there's also bankruptcy and divorce implications for whistleblowers. So it's important to get an experienced whistleblower lawyer. Um, if there are um, issues with the whistleblower's employee employment. You could better believe that's going to come up in litigation. And if the whistleblower settles those and, and signs a severance agreement that has a release of claims in some courts, depending on what the government knows, um, they could release your ability to bring a false claims act. So again, there are some traps for the unwary that it's really necessary to have a, an experienced whistleblower lawyer um, give advice on. 
All right, now to the good part of the presentation. For those of you who were snoring through the False Claims Act part, the introduction part, here's, here's some good a good part. The, one of the more recent trends in false claims cases are these data-driven cases. And what are what is data-driven cases? So, um, so the government and relators have been relying on advanced data mining and analytics techniques to spot indicators of fraud. Um, and this data is publicly available or purchased data sets. In 2011, CMS um, released Medicare claims data to promote transparency. Um, companies have historically purchased um, uh, hospital discharge data and they sell them. Uh, it's pretty expensive, but companies such as IMS Health, Truven Health and Analytics, um, and other companies sell this healthcare data. So what whistleblowers have been doing, doing is either utilizing this publicly available data or this purchased data and have been analyzing it and on the basis of that analysis have been filing false claims act cases. Um, Back in the day, this has been very successful for a lot of whistleblowers. Here are some examples of cases um, that settled for a significant amount. The first one's 280 million, the second one's 98 million um, for claims um, originated in part by a whistleblower who utilized publicly available data against hospitals, um, analyzing that data, showing some anomalies in the data that might point to fraud, and then bringing a False Claims Act case. Indeed, there have been LLCs formed to analyze data purchased or, and then analyze data and bring false claims act suits. Um, these companies use algorithms and statistical processes to analyze the Medicare claims data and then allege that defendants use certain procedures to improperly inflate reimbursement. Um, these cases were also, these cases brought by Integra Meta Analytics were also successful, resulting in a $61 million settlement in one case and a $188 million case in another. However, more recently, uh, these sort of data-driven cases have been subject to some uh, issues. And the first issue is government dismissal. The second is failure to plead falsity. And the third is this public disclosure bar issues. So, um, what happens with the government dismissal angle? In this case, um, the DOJ moved to dismiss, dismiss 10 kickback-related false claims act complaints against 38 major pharmaceutical companies. It was brought by, again, one of these um, LLCs that was formed that purchased data and analyzed the data. Um, the LLC was formed only to file QTAM actions. And one thing I didn't talk about or go into detail is, is, is the government has uh, ability to dismiss cases. Even if you know they decline the cases, then they could threaten dismissal. And a lot of times they're granted that they have unlimited dismissal power. So in this case, the government moved to dismiss. And, and what they said was that they thought this was a problem um, because it would uh, result in a windfall for opportunistic relators. The complaint that this particular LLC had filed was had sweeping allegations and they obtained information from under false pretenses. What they allege is that they, uh, this after they analyzed this data, they had uh, their company employees call doctors under uh, to obtain information. They were posing as a neutral healthcare research company to obtain the data. And then they used that data to support the allegations in their complaint. And so the government moved to dismiss and the court dismissed this LLC's um, complaint. So in addition to issues with the government dismissal, there have been issues related to the failure to plead falsity. So in this particular case, um, it was dismissed in May of 2020 
the relator purportedly applied algorithms and statistical processes to publicly available CMS data. Um, the defendant moved to dismiss, saying there are, could be a lot of reasons why there's anomalies in this data other than falsity. And the, for, uh, the, the district court agreed with the defendants, and the Fifth Circuit agreed after appeal with the district court. And so the case was dismissed. And this is against Integra Meta Analytics, a company that in previous slides was very successful with this data-driven um, strategy and now has been less successful. They, their case got dismissed. And the final challenge that I'm gonna talk about in relation to uh, data-driven cases is the public disclosure bar. So under the False Claims Act, a whistleblower can be barred from obtaining a recovery if the case has already been publicly disclosed. You know, back in the day, the purpose of this was they didn't want people reading the news, getting quote unquote evidence from the news, and then filing a whistleblower case based on the evidence that, that they, didn't, they didn't know. So there's a couple of prong analysis, and the information that's in the complaint has to be substantially the same uh, as, as information that was publicly disclosed in, in news media. And if it's substantially the same, then the only way a whistleblower cannot be barred from a recovery if their original source of this information, meaning that they have direct and independent knowledge that materially adds, these are all sort of industry legalese terms. But the bottom line is, uh, you know, in the statute, the False Claims Act statute, there's a very broad um, determination of what is public. And it includes uh, news media. And if news media, uh, and it, back in the day in 1986, you know, there really was an internet to worry about. Um, nowadays, anything can be quote unquote publicly disclosed or quote unquote in the news media because if it's on the internet. And so this a public disclosure bar has been utilized to dismiss a lot of cases and it, it has been successful. And in this particular data-driven cases, you know, there is a very broad reading of news media and that includes the data that is either purchased or available publicly. So if a whistleblower only source of knowledge is this data and analyzing this data, then they could potentially be barred on the public disclosure bar. This is currently being litigated in the Ninth Circuit, so all eyes are on the Ninth Circuit um, to determine, you know, what is this definition of, of the word news media. Moving forward to, I think, probably the subject a lot of people are looking forward to, um, because it's a question every time I give a presentation that I get asked regularly, what about False Claims Act and COVID-19? So historically speaking, national crisis amplifies the risk for widespread fraud. How do we know this? Well, we can see it based on history. Indeed, the False Claims Act was enacted during the time of the Civil War, a national crisis. The Union Army was getting defrauded. Um, later on, we can see this in uh, the 2008 uh, economic downfall and the uh, TARP funds that the government funneled into the uh, economy. We can also see this when a natural disaster occurs and FEMA allocates money to assist the area or individuals that have been suffered from a natural disaster. Typically, after the government has funneled money into the economy in a certain way through a disaster fund, um, years, a couple of years later, you'll start seeing false claims that cases being unsealed uh, because to combat the fraud, waste, and abuse. Uh, this is no different from the COVID-19 funds. Um, 
you know, this COVID-19 has been a very traumatic event in the United States, economically and healthcare-wise. And the United States responded by funneling money into the economy to help individuals that were suffering because of, of COVID-19. I listed here on this slide and the next two slides, the amount of money that has been funneled into, into the government, I'm sorry, into the communities. Here we have the Coronavirus Preparedness and Response Supplemental Appropriations Act, $8.3 billion in emergency funding for several federal agencies, HHS, a small business administration, the State Department, um, the US Agency for International Development, the Family First Coronavirus Response Act, $3.4 billion uh, for unpaid sick leave, tax credits, and free COVID-19 testing. It also expanded food assistance, unemployment benefits, and Medicaid funding. We have the CARES Act, which funneled $1.9 trillion in relief to individuals, hospitals, businesses, government agencies, so on and so forth. It's, it keeps on going. We have a $483 billion fund to the uh, PPP and other SBA programs, uh, again, to provide for COVID testing and tracing programs, and providers treating COVID-19 patients. There's the Payment Protection Program um, that modifies provisions related to the forgiveness and loans. There's a Provider Relief Fund that was funded through um, CARES and another act of $175 billion. And the Provider Relief Fund is um, for qualified providers of healthcare services um, so that they can be uh, receive payments for healthcare related expenses or lost revenue, revenue due to COVID-19. It continues 900 billion in the Consolidated Appropriations Act. Um, there is direct payments that are distributed to households, um, 284 billion for the PPP, um, economic aid to hard-hit small businesses, 325 more, more billion. Um, the HEROES Act, which in, in funneled three trillion money into um, to aid local governments, healthcare-related spending and, and, and related spending, et cetera. I included you know this little section of it because you know I know today we're talking about healthcare healthcare-related spending. Some of the COVID funds went to reimburse healthcare providers for lost revenue again, uh, COBRA premiums, eliminating cost share. So a lot of money has been funneled into the economy um, from the, a lot of government money. And you know, there's a lot of websites out there that tracks this money. And I just went through some of these websites um, to give you an idea of, of where is the money going? Who is spending this, this money? If you see here to the left, the dark blue is dollars that have already been spent. The light blue are, are dollars yet to be spent, dollars that have been allocated. You can see the Small Business Administration. There's been a great economic impact to this COVID-19 virus. So a lot of money has been given to the SBA. Of course, healthcare companies, um, the top 10 recipients have been small businesses, uh, the types. Uh, the top 10 recipients have been this United Healthcare Services, um, Governor's author, Authorized Representatives. So I just wanted to give you an idea of there's a lot of government money with all this legislation. This government money is going uh, funneled into the economy in these general um, spots. Um, if you see here, again, yet to be spent $3.3 billion uh, was allocated for pharmaceutical preparation. Um, 
medical, dental, and hospital equipment. So there's a lot of money that has been funneled to the healthcare system. And naturally so, we're in a, in a healthcare, we're in a pandemic, of course. Um, here's another interesting website, usspending.gov. Um, and you can see, you know, billions of dollars have been funneled for grants and fixed charges, uh, personal compensation and benefits. And if you looked um, award recipient, again, here comes uh, United Healthcare Services, a healthcare company, $120 billion. I got curious. I wanted to see, you know, what type of funding United Healthcare was receiving. Um, and it looks here, 98% of the fund funding came from provider relief fund. I thought that was interesting. So there's a lot of information online as to where is the money going? You know, right now it's too early to tell if there's any fraud going on. If I was a betting woman, I would say there probably was, but we're not going to know right now because it's going to take time for the fraud to evolve. It's going to take time for you know, whistleblowers or the government to detect the fraud. And if the False Claims Act case is filed, it's likely filed under seal. And you probably won't know about it until the case gets unsealed. However, we can guess about the types of False Claims Act cases that might come about. Some of the general theories of liability is, you know, submitting an application to receive certain funds and lying on that application to get the funds, using those funds for unauthorized purposes, um, bid collusion, price gouging, um, some particular types of fraud related to healthcare. Um, I thought would be interesting to discuss here. There could be we saw that a lot of money was uh, given for grants. There could be some grant fraud going on. Maybe in order to receive that grant money, there have been some um, dishonesty in the applications, or uh, a lot of times you have to submit data to continue to get installment payments. Maybe that data has been fudged. There could be potential clinical trial fraud, potential kickbacks given to receive the funds, Medicaid rebate fraud, off-label marketing, defective products. And I think this, Next slide is helpful in walking through um, potential clinical trial fraud. This I, I lifted this dis drug discovery and development timeline and, and superimposed some of the potential frauds in the red here. You know, the, in order to create a drug and create a vaccine and treatments, antibody treatments, a drug needs to go through a series of um, steps to get FDA approval. There's the pre-discovery process, there's the clinical trials, then there's the FDA review, and then there's the post-market review. So, you know, during the, the initial drug trials, there could have been kickbacks involved, there could have been grant fraud, there's certain um, GLP, good um, laboratory practices acts that a company needs to comply with. If, if they did not comply with that, that could be a potential fraud after the drug has been improved. There's then good manufacturing practices that a, a manufacturer needs to comply with in order um, to get, you know, to produce or manufacture the drug. After the drug is on the market, there are certain postmarks and adverse event reporting requirements. And up until approval, there's, you know, fraud on the FDA theory. So, you can see here that there's a lot of potential areas for fraud. We don't know if any of this has happened yet because again, it hasn't come to fruition. It takes time for fraud to uh, come out to light. And in clinical trials continued, there is an operation warp speed aimed to get 300 million doses of safe, effective vaccine. 
Um, and you can see Congress awarded over $10 billion in supplemental funding for some of these clinical trials. You can look at the contracts, the government posted the contracts, it's right there um, on this HHS government website. It includes you know, $2.48 billion to Moderna, uh, $2.1 billion to JSK, $1.38 million to Apigec. So you could see that there's been a ton of money funneled and where the money has been funneled to. Now, the government has anticipated that there could be a lot of fraud, waste, and abuse occurring. So when they created the CARES Act, they also created a pandemic response accountability team. And that's a lot of times how come we have all this data about where the money went. They wanted transparency. They wanted the public to see where the funds were going. Um, and you can find out where the funds are going. The Ethan Davis, the principal deputy assistant attorney general for DOJ civil division, um, confirmed that they will energetically use enforcement tool available to prevent wrongdoers from exploiting the COVID-19 uh, crisis, specifically cited the False Claims Act as one of the most effective weapons in combating fraud. The DOJ said that they would even be looking at private equity firms that sometimes invest in companies receiving CARES Act funds. So the, the government is already prepared for some potential fraud. Um, they announced publicly that they charged 474 defendants with criminal offenses connected COVID-19 pandemic. Not all these are false claims act cases, not all of them related to healthcare, but the government has been looking into this. They're prepared. They understand that when a national crisis occurs, there's a, a chance for widespread fraud, waste, and abuse, and, and they want to combat it. So they're taking this very seriously. Um, in fact, if you see here, um, there in the healthcare industry, one of the more recent settlements is related to this provider relief fund fraud. So again, if we look back in the slides, there has been um, a lot of government money to healthcare industries to um, reimburse providers for treating COVID-19 patients or reimburse providers that have lost a lot of revenue due to COVID-19. You know, there was a period of time where um, elected procedures were not allowed to occur. There was a period of time where doctors weren't allowed to go into their offices and they lost a lot of revenue. So the Congress legislation um, ensured that the, the doctors would not be denied a livelihood and provided provider relief funds. So in order to receive this provider relief fund, the doctors had to make various certifications to the government in order to get money. And in those certifications, if the if the the provider or the physicians were not truthful, that could be a false certification. So that could be a um, a potential false claims act violation. And um, if you see here, um, this is exactly what happened um, to a uh, an individual that accepted a provider relief funds um, from the government. This physician was criminally charged. Uh, she was an owner of a Michigan home health services business. So she submitted an application to the government to receive uh, provider relief funds, saying that she needed it to uh, care for COVID-19 patients that she was caring for. And, and she took that money from the government, certified that she'd be using this money for COVID patients, but instead issued the checks to her family for personal use. Improper, unauthorized use of provider relief funds. Um, she was criminally charged. The government was not messing around. I, in my opinion, you know, this isn't the largest case, 
um, that I think we're going to see. But the government was clearly sending a message to this to the community that they're not going to um, take these false certifications lightly. Um, another area of interest that the government had um, had expressed concern about was balance billing. Now, what is balance billing? I'm sure we all heard of it in the sense of insurance company versus uh, Medicare is um, the terms and conditions require that providers uh, that accept the provider relief funds not to collect out-of-pocket payments from patients for all their care um, per, for, per, for a presumptive or actual case of COVID. So a patient comes in, they say, I think I might have COVID um, or they do have COVID and the provider treats that patient. They have then you know, sent a certification to the government that hey, I need these provider relief funds to treat this patient. They use those funds to treat the patient, and then they, they find out the patient also has insurance, and then they bill insurance for treating the patient and, and sense balance billing. Um, then that's a, a, a piece of fraud, and that is something that the government is really, really concerned about. And so um, that is something that the OIG is looking into. I know the OIG has... Um, publish a list of potential frauds that it is very concerned about. Um, and here you can see uh, one, another law firm, the Arnold, Arnold Porter, has uh, a COVID fraud tracker. So they have been diligently tracking um, cases that have been brought, uh, uh, COVID cases, COVID fraud cases under the CARES Act. So if you click on this link, you can find a bunch of the cases. But again, right now, it's really, really too early to tell, you know, what type of fraud is going to come about. We can guess at it based on where the money is going and the types of fraud that we've seen under the False Claims Act previously, but it, it's it's hard to tell. I think, you know, some of the fraud will end up coming um, to fruition and unsealed in the next a couple of years and probably beyond if, if money keeps getting funneled into the economy, but only time will tell. So it looks like my time is up. Um, I really encourage you to download these slides. And um, obviously we have a little bit of time right now and I'm going to be answering uh, any questions that you might have. And uh, in addition to those questions, if you think of questions later on, here is my email address, my phone number. Uh, you can link me in if you wanna find me in the future. Um, please feel free to reach out either to healthcare compliance or myself and I will hopefully, hopefully be able to answer any of the questions that you might have. Thank you so much, Shauna. Very much appreciate that. Uh, we do have a few questions here. So the first one is, why are so, why are um, there not as many successful False Claims Act cases where the government has not intervened? Um, it's a good question, and it's a lot of times, you know, when you file a False Claims Act case. Uh, the whistleblower has a, a piece of the information. They don't have all of the information. And sometimes when the government investigates, they uncover that, you know, what this other information that the whistleblower had um, wasn't, it wasn't fraud. There's a good reason for why the whistleblower didn't have it. Or perhaps the government asks the agency and says, hey, would if you had known of this fraud, would you have made payments? And the agency says no. So in that instance, when the government tells the whistleblower and the whistleblower attorney the reasons for their declination, and the reasons are a good one, the whistleblower and the whistleblower attorney aren't going to expend resources to pursue it. So a lot of times 
you know, it's non-meritorious or the, the facts didn't pan out. And so cases aren't brought forward. Um, sometimes it's just, it's, it's very costly to litigate. So people decide not to litigate. Um, and, you know, the ones that are, are taken are, are cases that either there's a clear cut liability or there's, uh, you know, the, the company is solvent and there's ability to collect sometimes with cases that are declined maybe the whistleblower attorney determines you know this this company isn't solvent so even if we were successful we're not going to be able to collect money so it would be a little bit of a waste of resources so that's a long way of saying that there's many reasons why a case isn't successful also when a government intervenes the government has great power they also have power to um take a company you know say they can't use medicare or medicaid anymore they can't seek reimbursement they'll you know and and the company that's a the death knell to a company because they rely on funds for medicare and medicaid and without that um they're they really don't have a practice so you know there's a little bit of leverage there that the government can have against the company and a lot of times the company will choose to settle rather than be threatened with being excluded from medicare and medicaid okay um Okay, great. So uh, why are there less recoveries under the False Claims Act in 2020 when so much government money was pumped into the economy through COVID relief funds? Well, you know, I think everyone was put on halt for a period of time in 2020. You know, when the pandemic first, you know, all the courts shut down, there was a three-month period where everything was shut down. And so I think that had a part Part to do with it. I think investigations were continuing to be slowed because you, know, you can't do any in-person meetings or interviews. I also think, you know, despite the money being pumped in, it's going to take some time for False Claims Act cases to be, for the fraud to come to fruition, for people to discover the fraud, for a False Claims Act case to be filed, and for them to come out from under seal. So I think all of those led to, hey, there's a pause in the economy, and, and then later, but I think we'll see a, a more robust response and false claims act litigation in the coming years. And it just takes some time for that to come out, for the fraud to come out. Okay, and um, I know this this next question, um, I recall you you went over it some, but um, but I don't know if I heard the, the total answer for it. Um, it says you, um, the question is, can you file a false claims act anonymously? So, um, if you could answer that. So it's, I've seen it done where there's, you know, and I have in the past, Jane or John Doe. Um, there are some attorneys that file uh, LLCs. Uh, so they'll form an LLC for the whistleblower and file it. I always, you know, and there's a chance for the case to, you know, no one to find out who the LLC member is. There's a chance. My experience, I never promise clients that they can remain anonymous. First of all, if the case is litigated uh, and successful, the, the whistleblower is going to have to be known. If the case is dismissed, there's a chance that no one's going to move to unseal the identities of the LLC members. Um, I know I've had a case, uh, the current policy for DOJ is to move to disclose the identity of a relator, even if the government's declining, even because the case isn't going forward, if the uh, whistleblower was named as Jane or John Doe. So there's a slight chance that could happen, but I, I never promise client, clients that that's going to be a definite. Okay. Um, okay, that's fair. Um, what are counter 
what are counterclaims a company can file against a whistleblower who brings a false claims act case? So some of the counterclaims include, um, you know, you stole documents. You, you, at the beginning of your employment, you signed a confidentiality agreement and you breached that agreement by um, taking these documents or disclosing the contents of the documents. You violated HIPAA because the documents that you took contained uh, PHI. Now, a lot, I think I went over this a little bit, but a lot of times those counterclaims are unsuccessful. Not to say, you know, a, a whistleblower can be willy-nilly about the documents they take. You know, the documents need to come um, in the ordinary course of business. The whistleblower can't break into somebody's office or a data room to get the documents. So if the, if the evidence and the documents are legally obtained, uh, typically, and they're very narrow to the type of fraud that the whistleblower is alleging, those counterclaims, generally speaking, have, have been unsuccessful, but they're very stressful. Every time, if you have a whistleblower and they're accused, you know, there's a claim filed against them for stealing documents or secrets, that's a serious charge. And I know it produces a lot of stress on whistleblowers. That said, again, these cases are, are more threats against whistleblowers so that they don't bring cases, but it, they're concerning and they should, they're taken very seriously. Okay, um, thank you so much, Shauna. Do you have any other words of advice or anything that you've maybe thought of during the presentation that you'd like to leave with us today? I, I the only thing I can think of is, you know, it's going to be interesting to watch how this COVID nineteen funding and the fraud plays out. You know, pay attention. Um, uh, look at, you know, check out that fraud tracker. I think it'd be interesting, and you know. Uh, of course, if any other questions arise, please feel free to reach out to me. Okay, great. Well, um, thank you again so much. And thanks for being with us here today, Shauna. Uh, we appreciate it so much. All right, thank you. Thank you. And thank you attendees for um, attending today. Please use the contact information on the screen for any questions, or if you send us any questions, we'll forward them on. Please rem remember your PACOM and PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There is no need to request it. You can register for future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.